What did we just watch, Amy? We just watched the musical Bright Star at our local community theater. What? Live and in person. Live theater. And it was almost a full house, so. Yay. That was our first piece of live theater uh, since at least the pandemic started. Yeah. Uh, which is three, a solid three years. Yeah. But I think. And it, it had been a little while before then, too. Yeah, because of my illness made it hard for me to mm-hmm. get out. Um, and actually enjoy theater. So yeah. right now I'm, I'm doing better. And we just wore our masks. Yeah. And they almost masks. nobody else did. <laughs> no, we're behind the curve because we still mask up a lot and everybody else is over it. So Yeah, but I'm also kind of okay with wearing masks in public forever. Uh, they're good for things that aren't COVID too. I will say sitting in my mask, uh, surrounded by people... For two and a half hours made me very hot. Yeah, that's fair. So, there's there's that. Felicity just rolled a die. Wait, you, are we playing D&D, buddy? You got a two. That's not great, bud. Oh, she's gonna die in her campaign. Maybe. Um, yeah, so yeah. this is a musical by Steve Martin. And? Uh, and Edie Brickle, Brickle, which is her his, like... Music writing partner, I believe, for Steep Canyon mm-hmm. Rangers. So they've worked together. And Steve Martin has written... I said he had written several plays. Um, you pointed <laughs> out that he's only written three or four, which doesn't count for several. I so, I don't know what, what the right number is for several. So I could be entirely wrong. Yeah. The musical is set in the Blue Ridge Mountains, mm-hmm. where we live. And mm-hmm. some of the parts... Happen in Asheville, where mm. we live. Mm-hmm. So that is cool to mm-hmm. see. Um, I had never heard of the musical until about 24 hours before we went to see it. Same. So I went completely blind, mm-hmm. not knowing anything, which is not how I like to see theater. I like to maybe read the play first. At least get, know what it's about. Get some research on what to expect. Unlike a film. Yeah. I like going into a film... Him not knowing mm-hmm. what, um, what to expect. And so, I see it run a few awards. Mm-hmm. And I am trying to think about what... I I got... My impression last night was it was fine. I uh-huh. thought the um, production was good. I thought the actors were good. Mm-hmm. Um I don't want to say for community theater, because no. I think community theater gets a bad rap as being yeah. very amateur. Um, no, I was I was generally fond of the performances. Yeah, and the one who played the lead, Alice, mm-hmm. had a very distinctive, very strong, loud voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I enjoyed her performance. She gets to switch between when she's kind of a like 16 or 17, mm-hmm. and when then 23 years, years later, later yeah. um, as, as an adult, mm-hmm. um, I thought she did real well with that, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I thought the performers who played her assistants in the her adult years, she works in a magazine, mm-hmm. had a great rapport with each other. Yes, they played really well off um, each other. They did. I don't know that they fit the rest of the show. That's true. They might have been in a slightly different show yeah. than, than the rest of the show. Um, but it was like a little 
Mm -hmm. Nice little comedic um, moments. Um, Yeah, so I think the production was good. I had some questions about the story. I had some dramaturgical questions. I had plenty of dramaturgical questions. And that's where I went, okay, this is probably fine. (laughs) But like you said, I, I don't like to go into a musical blind. And I do find with musicals, the more... I see it and listen to it and read about it, the more I appreciate. Mm-hmm. And this was based, I believe, on an album that they... Sort of. I pulled up the album and it's... Uh, some of the songs are the same, but a lot of them aren't. Um, for what that's worth. Um, like, Sun's Gonna Shine is definitely a song there. And then the rest of them I don't recognize from the mm-hmm. musical. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, there is Sarah Jane and the Iron Mountain Baby, which is a folk story or folk song about a baby that was found by a train track. Mm-hmm. Um, which does, in fact, matter in the case of the play. We're going to spoil the plot for this musical. Again, we spoil everything, but I just want to make sure that we say yeah, that. Yeah, there's something so different about spoiling a play or a musical, I feel like, than spoiling a TV show or a like film. In a, like, it's less of a big deal? Yeah, like, it's less of a big deal. I agree with that. I'm fine with that. But um, yes, we are going to spoil it, and these are our first impressions, and um, if you ask me in five years after I've seen this again, mm-hmm. I will you might probably change have your a mind. different opinion on it. Let's see a different production because it's you can't base your entire uh, analysis of a play on seeing one specific production. Yeah, this is our reaction to this production, and that's all it ever will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what did you think? What are your thoughts? I I thought the story was fine. <laughs> I thought the music was good. It was fine. It was... <laughs> I, I think the music was the strongest part. Yeah, yeah. Stronger than the story. I wish I could I wish I wish could listen to it again. Because mm-hmm. um, I, was, I was getting so sensory overwhelmed from um, the sound and the difference in levels in people's voices, the volume yes. of it, and being in close proximity to so many people in the audience, mm-hmm. and watching the dancing, trying to listen for the lyrics. And mm-hmm. one of the problems was enunciation in mm-hmm. in this particular um, production. So I think it, I think it, what, I think th- the songs were fun. I think the songs were fun. I, I think, think some of the lyrics were really kind of fun and clever. Yeah. I think the songs felt to me like they were written by someone who really appreciates, like, bluegrass music. Mm-hmm. And I, to be fair, I know Steve Martin and uh, Edie Bracknell, Bricknell appreciate bluegrass music. They're in a bluegrass band. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt that in the way that, um, for lack of a better term, none of the songs felt like Broadway musical songs. Yeah, that's true. Um which is fine, but can also 
sometimes stop a musical in its tracks if you're not careful. Um, and there were a couple of songs that I felt like that were like, this is not benefiting the story dramaturgically. It is someone saying how they feel over and over and over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. uh, which is fine in a three-minute song on an album, but when you put it in the context of a musical where we have more context, you don't need your songs to do as much of the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. I think it's also a problem just with, in general with like jukebox musicals, which I would not call this a jukebox musical. But you're, you're fitting songs into a story rather than having them arise out of the story. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's true of the music in this show for the most part. There were a lot of stop and tell you how I feel songs, um, which are fun if the, if the music's good, but don't progress the story in any interesting way, mm -hmm. which is how I prefer my musicals. I do think the performers did well with songs that kind of repeated feelings. Oh yeah, no, I think they did. They, they did what they could with them. Um, they made different choices on mm -hmm. each time the feelings were. Yeah, but I'm, I'm thinking about, in particular, um, the Act 2 song where Jimmy Ray decides he can't tell Alice the truth about what happened to their baby. Mm -hmm. I felt that incredibly repetitive. Mm -hmm. Even as the actor was trying to do things over and over again, he's just like, you can't, I can't tell her, I can't tell her, I can't tell her. And while it might have been interesting musically, it was boring dramaturgically. Um, and then we repeated that almost verbatim, not the song, but the emotional component when you know, 20 years later he does tell her and then she has her emotional breakdown. And I'm like, we did this already. Like, yes, it would be impactful to the person hearing it, but we're once again getting a sad song where the person is telling me their feelings over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, which I didn't love. I think my dramaturgical bone to pick. Mm-hmm. Just one? Mainly one. Okay. Which I, the intermission, I was like, I, I have some serious questions. They were answered by the end of the, mm -hmm. um, end of the show, but I felt like in Act One, so this, the protagonist, as it were, is... Alice. Yes. That we see at her two different stages in her life. Yes. And she does have the first song, which is If You Knew My Story. Yeah. Which is about, she has a story to tell. Yep. Um, it's, and it's the first number. It's not introduced with dialogue. No, yeah, it, it opens the show. Anything. It opens the show. She comes on and is like, I'm going to tell you my story. Um, so, boom, right there. She's a protagonist. Yes. Um, and then for the rest of Act 1 in the scenes where she is as an adult, she does not feel like the protagonist. At all. At all. <laughs> at all. It's actually um, Billy. Billy. It's Billy's story. It feels like Billy's story. And from the first time he enters, which is right after she sings her, the, the opening number, mm -hmm. um, it's... He it just felt like he was the protagonist yeah, of the show. Absolutely, it just felt like it. You it almost is set up so you forget that Alice is the protagonist because like okay you get this story you don't see Alice again for probably thirty minutes and when you do she's introduced kind of suddenly 
without a lot of characterization. And it almost immediately goes back to the past. Yes. So it, it, in that story, we don't get a sense of, up to that point at least, we don't get a sense of like who she is or even remember that she's the protagonist or that she sang the opening song. Like I, I very much could have read it as like, okay, we've got this opening number. We've got this, you know, beautiful singer. She's telling a story. And my interpretation of that until later in the show was like, this is not specifically her story. This is the people of the show's story. And it was staged very much like we are the people of this part of the country, the Blue Ridge Mountains, and we all have stories and we all have stories to tell. And so this is one of those. I wouldn't have read that as a protagonist song at the time. More so, it was like a, an entract, a sort of introduction to the themes of the show. Not that literally we are going to hear her story. Because, as you said, we don't. For a while. <laughs> we don't hear her story for a while. Um, yeah. I mean, I didn't... I read the first song as her story. I didn't see it as the character's story. And... Part of that may be because the actress from Alice is so dynamic. Yeah. She's so much louder yeah. than the rest of the um, cast combined. Mm -hmm. uh, your eye pulled towards her. Mm -hmm. um, That's totally fair. I, I That was all definitely there in like the choreography and the sound mix. Um, I just, at that moment, I didn't know, is she the main character or is she... A narrator or just a soloist you mm -hmm. know for this song mm -hmm. um and i didn't realize that was her even when she was introduced later uh, as her adult person yeah. i didn't i didn't make that connection that's fair that's until later that oh that was her singing that song i mean obviously the same actress but she's very much she's costumed differently she carries herself very differently she's mm -hmm. presenting herself very differently when we see her for the first time in character I think it's helpful that I also read the synopsis, so I knew in the synopsis center is Alice. Fair enough. So that was also coloring. <laughs> that absolutely impacts that, yeah. It's funny what we bring to the table. Not changes our interpretation really of the play. Story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. I think structurally, they had this story they wanted to tell of this woman who loses her child and moves on in life and yada yada and the back and forth methodology of telling that story back and forth through time through flashbacks mm -hmm. didn't feed that story well and it didn't benefit the structure of the play mm -hmm. um i think you could have almost and it might have been really interesting to have the entire first act be set in the 1920s and the entire second act be set in the 40s and have it as a time jump instead. Um, I think that would that would change the structure fairly dramatically. And you could even have it more or less end where it does in the first act because we don't go back to the 20s really. In the second act. In the second act. We get one song with... Uh, not Billy. Uh, 
Jimmy Ray. We get one song with Jimmy Ray in the 20s after um, the baby. And that's it. We don't go back at all. So, well, we do get Sun's Gonna Shine where she's at the... Oh, uh, that's true. We get that one. Um, getting ready to go to college. Yeah, but none of those really pushed the story forward. No, no but they did take place. They did take place in Act 2. I will give you that. Um, which, the whole thing felt unbalanced because of that. Because, because we have these sort of competing protagonists competing within the structure of the play of like okay whose story are we telling here um and by the second act it's very clearly alice's story um i think uh billy becomes a secondary character um by the second act which makes the first act muddled absolutely i agree completely in the context of the whole yeah um well, and it when you spend so much time with Billy and his childhood friend Margot, um, who they are sort of interested in each other, she's been editing his stories he's been writing while he was off in the war. Um, that whole all of Billy's plot felt very underdeveloped to me, mm-hmm. which was disappointing considering I was reading him as the protagonist yeah. the whole time. So I'm like, why? What is it about this story that makes it unique or interesting? And the answer is, uh, nothing about his story makes it interesting or unique. Alice's story makes his story interesting or unique. Right, his relationship to Alice. Yeah. Um, That's what makes it interesting, which flattens out that entire arc to meaninglessness, almost. Um, So for, again, spoiling the absolute most of this um alice has a child out of wedlock with the scion of a young of a rich businessman and the rich businessman takes the baby and says he's going to put it up for adoption but throws it off a train um and that ruins alice's life she doesn't know that's what happened but she's mad and she never sees her child again and also that child grows up to be billy um, and eventually works for her at the literary journal she's writing for. Mm-hmm. And then she discovers that he's her son. Uh, through a series of very, very contrived conveniences. Yes. All I could think when we were getting to that, because I knew that was ha- going to happen roughly by Act 2. I was like, okay, this is going to be where we go. Because um, it's the only reason these stories being told together makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, When it was actually being revealed on stage, like, oh, I found this child in this suitcase and wearing this sweater. She's like, I made this sweater. That's my child. Um, All I could think was this was played for comedy in the importance of being earnest 200 years ago. (laughs) Like, the climax of that show is through an intentionally silly series of coincidences it becomes revealed that Ernest who we knew had been found in a handbag at a train station um, like that becomes a key part of his identity and where he comes from and finding out the answers to that allows us to very quickly get to the happy ending of the show Mm -hmm. so having that happen in this 
where it is drawn out extensively over the entirety of the second act and played for drama um, was undercut to me. I was I was like, this is too silly. I didn't even make that connection. That's yeah. A, that's a good thought. And apparently there was a child found by a train track in a handbag. Like, that is a thing that happened in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Okay, I believe that. I have no problem with that. But if you're going to tell a story about that, an entirely fictional story, um, with that as its central premise, I think you have to acknowledge that anything you step away from reality is going to be silly. <laughs> because as far as I know, nobody ever found out who that child's parents actually were. Yes, he was raised by someone else. That's fine. But the sheer coincidentality of finding out, like, oh, not only did I find my mom, uh, but also she was my boss at this literary journal where I've been trying to, you know, live up to my entire life and be a writer, like, is Shakespearean in its coincidentalness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but again, Shakespeare plays that for comedy 99% of the time. But this was earnest. Oh, this was very earnest. Um, to the point where it didn't feel like they knew it was silly, or they chose to ignore that it was silly. It makes me wonder... It makes me want to see more of Alice as an adult. Yes. Who she is as an adult. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's okay if we don't see the process necessarily of how she goes this very traumatic episode mm -hmm. into becoming who she, she is, is as an adult but it would be nice to see her see who she is who as an is adult she is, who she is because we only ever see her defined by this single moment of trauma mm -hmm. even 20 years later like okay she's she's a an icy editor the end that's not character no no it doesn't tell me much about mm -hmm. her character um, yeah, she was under. I think all the characters were underdeveloped. They they all felt kind of like stock types, mm -hmm. um, which is not a bad thing. I think stock types, particularly in theater, can be beneficial. But it doesn't. You have to know you're doing that to a certain extent, and you have to almost lean into it, which this production did not. Well, the play didn't. Well, then the production didn't either. Like right. I think, I yeah. think you can lean into that through the production and heighten uh, some of that. But the the whole production did it very naturalistically, um, trying to bring a a truth to these characters. Earnest. Earnest. Earnestness. Earnestness, which is particularly ironic because the plot was out of the importance of being earnest. There were aspects of the first act that reminded me of Oklahoma. Yes. I think, I feel like in its time period and the love story between Alice and Jimmy Ray mm -hmm. and they have a picnic dance mm -hmm. and uh, so. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely see that. What, what bothered me, I'm, I'm being mean and I don't want to be, but it bothered me that this whole musical felt of the same era as Oklahoma. And that is not 
a compliment mm. in the sense that like they didn't like Oklahoma is a really good show. I've I've decided I've come around on it, um, but it was it is very much of its time and when it was created, and is honestly I think more complex of a show than this is. This is all very pat, but while I was watching this, the thought that occurred to me the most was this was written in 2013. <laughs> this feels like it was written in 1960. Mm. Um, like in a, it, it felt like of an era before all the other, musical all the history. other musical history. Musical theater history. <laughs> yeah. Um, with that, um, I'm out from this area. I did not grow up in this area. I did not get a sense of place. I also did not. If they hadn't had, if I didn't know the background, uh-huh. if they didn't mention Asheville, if they didn't um, have some mountains on the drop in the yes. back, I would have... So this could have taken place anywhere. It could have been a rural place. Asheville actually seemed like a much bigger city. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it was compared to the small towns that the uh, the characters came from, but Nashville's not a, a city. big city. <laughs> no, it is a city, well, but yeah. it's not a big city. Yeah. It's not... Um... Yeah, I... I... And, and during that time period, it still would have been smaller than Raleigh mm-hmm. and Charlotte, which are mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, it... It felt to me um, like someone who was not from the area was writing about it and just listing off cities well, on the map. It's set in the area in that they say it's set in the area. Yeah. But it's not shown. You're told. You're told. Um, you're told because people say, I'm in this town or I'm going to Asheville, rather than it having any sort of sense of, of what makes those places unique. Um, again, comparing it to something like Oklahoma, which is complicated. I think Oklahoma does a really good job of being, of embodying the place that it is in. You get a sense of the moment in history, of that sort of pre, you know, when it was still a territory, the, you know, songs reflect the culture of the, the culture people. of the people and like yeah in, this in was... an imaginary world because of course yes. it doesn't deal with like the native american <laughs> presence and whatnot in in oklahoma which just happens to be you know where all of yes the removal <laughs> of indigenous people. the literal trail of tears tears ended in oklahoma right or or um a black population yes um, it's very white. Yes. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's it, very white. And, and that leaves out a whole part of the cultural history. of Absolutely. Oklahoma. But I didn't even feel that we were getting that in this show. Uh, the, the How much the world is clear in Oklahoma yes. that they occupy, yeah. that they live in. Um, and not because they say we're in Oklahoma a bunch. <laughs> um, and... Like, sure, all the music was bluegrass. I 
I have a little bit of bone to pick with that. I would love for you to pick that bone. Well, I don't know much about bluegrass. I don't either. I But I was expecting more of what I associate the sound of bluegrass with. Mm. And all I got was that they had a banjo mm-hmm. in the orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, they played a little bit of fiddle. They had a steel guitar. Um, and, yeah. But other than that, if I hadn't gone in to it knowing that it was that has a bluegrass, bluegrass background, um, I would not have made that association i think i know so little about bluegrass i was just like oh this must be bluegrass because well, i've been told it is <laughs> it wasn't the sound the voices mm. uh, i did have a country sound like um there were elements of alice's voice that reminded me of like patsy klein yeah i see that um so it did have a kind of a country western sound mm-hmm. in some of the songs mm-hmm. which is not the same as a bluegrass sound yeah necessarily um where i saw it in particular was in the chorus i think the chorus had a lot of bluegrassy harmonizations that's something that i associate with bluegrass i don't know how accurate that is but that's something that i i'm used to hearing is a sort of those particular types of harmonizations Mm -hmm. which i think the chorus did a lot of that's one of the things I was curious about, and I don't think was in the program. Like, I was curious, was this orchestration by Martin and Bickle as well, or was this a different mm-hmm. orchestration? Because that can obviously change the sound of the yep. music dramatically. And you're going to have a different performance and a different kind of band when you're on stage in a local community theater as opposed to a Broadway musical. Not that Broadway musicals can't have you know, a nine-piece band and that's all they need, but I don't know what that orchestration was versus what is licensed out for people. Because mm-hmm. oftentimes when you do licensed musicals, they have a score that is easier to produce on a budget, mm-hmm. is what I will say. And so I'm curious how that impacts any of that. But I don't know, and it was not clear from anything I saw. But that's interesting that you didn't read the musical music as bluegrassy. Yeah, with the huge caveat that bluegrass is not anything that I know mm-hmm. much about. Fair. Musically speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had a banjo. It had a banjo. And that's... And a fiddle. Yeah. And a bass. Well... You're going to have a bass in a regular <laughs> orchestra mm-hmm. for a musical. That's true. What what makes it a fiddle and not a violin, other than calling it that? I don't know. Because I know he was. I know the guy was credited as the fiddler, not the violin. I don't know enough to tell you. <laughs> Fair enough. That. I haven't either. I did enjoy the chorus quite a bit. Those are some of my favorite parts. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one song early on where they did a lot of like clapping and slapping of yeah, a lot of physical percussion. Yeah, yeah, physical percussion. I liked that. Um, mm-hmm. I liked the way that the chorus could create a sense of place, um, like in the like we're in the picnic, train or the we're picnic. on the train yeah. um, or. We're in a crowded street. Mm-hmm. Um, there was 
I liked it when they were on stage, like, kind of sitting on stage when other people were singing. Mm-hmm. Not exactly in the world but where the people were singing. Nearby. But nearby. Yeah, I, um, I couldn't figure out why they were doing that sometimes and not others. Yeah, yeah, I do want you to make a choice there. Are they going to be on stage the whole time? Yeah. And come in? Like, okay, do that. That's, that's an interesting choice. Yeah. But, like, any time there was a big emotional moment, they would disappear. That is, yeah, yeah. And I think that undercuts it rather than reinforcing the big emotional moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Especially if you're going to put it in the context of, like, this is me telling my story. The question then becomes, like, oh, like, as an answer, like, who am I telling it to? I'm telling it to the chorus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're always present because they're always hearing the story as it's being told. Well, no, I'm actually telling it to you, the audience, and the chorus is just listening in occasionally. Um, I also think it's fascinating. I do not know where this choice is, if it's in the script or if it's um, something unique to this production. The chorus was not called a chorus. Oh, okay. They were called storytellers oh. in the playbill. So they were credited as storytellers. Interesting. For the members of the chorus. So it would be like Dr. Jones slash storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting and kind of like aligns linguistically with chorus, but is in a different place. Mm-hmm. But I also didn't feel like they were storytellers. I feel like that isn't what they were accomplishing dramaturgically. Um, and that, I think, is also undercut by the fact that they kept leaving the stage. Yeah. When you've set them up as watching and being present. Yeah. There was a moment, I think it was during the picnic, mm-hmm. where they stood within the orchestra and they were being like fireflies. They had lights. I thought hands. that was a brilliant moment that went on way too long until it was distracting. Yeah. <laughs> I get you. <laughs> Because by the end, I was only watching them. Yeah, not the and that's a failure. <laughs> yes, no, I thought idea. I thought it was a brilliant moment when it first happened, because they're up in the pit, which is the pit is not in a pit. It's the, the orchestra was upstage. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so four or five on, members on stage the whole time. Yeah, um, which is a great choice. I love that choice for musicals. Yeah. Um, I think that always reinforces the music in a way because you can see the people playing it um but yeah they're at the picnic and it's nighttime and you start seeing these little flashes of light and you realize like oh it's cast members holding tiny little leds in their hand that they will then like reveal and done and it was very heavily choreographed which worked until it didn't (laughs) um because it became the only thing I could see. <laughs> um, I wish they had done that for a little bit and then let the rest of the performances literally take center stage. That's, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Um, that also led to the moment with the, uh, the sex blanket. <laughs> Which, I'll be fair, it's hard to depict sexual congress on stage and i think they did the most interesting thing they could with it which was you know, they bring on these blankets to cover the people as like a mini curtain and then it's revealed and instead she's at the doctor's office learning she's pregnant mm-hmm. like that that as a moment was really good but it felt like hokier than almost everything else in the show 
Um, not helped by the guy in the audience who went, woo! Because they were having sex behind a blanket. Um, the love the unpredictability of an audience. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was fine. It didn't ruin the show. Um, I, since we're getting into some of the specifics of this performance, there were some real weird set choices that I struggled to understand. Oh, really? I thought the set worked smoothly. It worked smoothly 99% of the time. The things that didn't make sense to me were because most of it was very minimalistic and i'm fine with that you, you just know. roll in a couple, roll in a couple of, of things to suggest a place mm-hmm. except the front porch set that was also the door to the bookshop that piece was very out of place to me because it was the only wall we had um and it was bigger and more detailed than everything else that was wheeled in and out interesting like, I don't know why the bookshop needed a door other than we could have someone hit the button to make it go dingling when someone walked through the archway. Um, and I don't mind a front porch set, like, as a single, like, a door and a window and, a, and an awning. Like, that's a classic, and it works. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have that, and then they're like, okay, well, we can flip it around, and then it's the, the bookshop. And then we can move to the other side of the stage, and it's a different front porch. And it felt like a lot of work without the need if that makes sense like this literally larger than every other set piece that was used three or four times i mean i can see the practical element of we have this really large set piece we don't use it very much let's multi-purpose it and use it instead of a front porch it'll be uh, the bookshop, door, the doorway into a store. Yeah, I think that's fine. I think you could have done that if you were going to do that. I almost want you to go further to it. Have it be the door to the bar. You know, put some different hanging items on it. Have it be to the door to the offices that were in and out of multiple times. I think you could increase that purpose if that's what you're using it for. So it, it felt very out of place to me. And maybe it's just because it was on the side of the stage we were on, so I was looking at it a lot more than I would have otherwise. I don't know. Super nitpicky, not a problem. Didn't think. Didn't call Um, my attention in the same way as it did for you. I... Oh, did There were a couple of songs where it seemed like the chorus was signing. Did you notice that? Oh, I hated it. I hated it so much. I couldn't tell if they were actually doing ASL or something to mimic... Either way, it was a bad choice. Either one was a bad choice. It was either actually ASL, which did not fit. Or why do it for only a couple songs? Yeah. And not... And or, it, really was, it was really one song. Um, and one song in its reprise. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was like a variation on it that they did. Um, but yeah. No, it was... Literally the note I wrote next to it was blah. Um, it, it felt to me like they didn't trust the chorus to just sing, which is disappointing because they were a really good chorus. Well, there was a lot of like really nice choreography too throughout, and if they were going to do movements, they, they could have done 
lyrical any other number of things yeah um but it was literally just hand gestures that felt like asl the the most obvious one that that i know is the sign which is the sign for baby which is you rock a baby in your arms Mm -hmm. which is effective from a language standpoint of visually communicating something but looks like an elementary school choir doing hand motions to a song at a mm. pageant. Well, I watched it and I thought, okay, this this is an interesting choice. I'm not sure yet how I feel about it. I'm still not sure how I feel about it. Um, I do think that there's an increasing conversation in theater these days about ASL and there's been a kind of rising visibility of some ASL musicals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and so that made me wonder if they were kind of pulling attention, entering that, that conversation in a way. Um, yeah, I could absolutely see that being what they were attempting to do. I think it is very difficult to do that if you don't have deaf people involved in your production. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't want to make the assumption that they don't. Fair. The reason I think they don't is because we only see it in this one song. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I think. Cause I, I don't th- want to make the assumption that they do either. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, I mean, uh, Deaf Austin has done some really cool stuff. Um, Deaf West in L.A. has done some really cool musicals with deaf people mm-hmm. where, like, one of the directors is deaf. And mm-hmm. that can change the structure. I mean, we saw the thing on CBS Sunday Morning about the... Um, there's a Music Man. Music Man production which, where... Which is so fascinating. Yeah. And you have Harold Hill deaf. as deaf. And I'm like, oh, that opens up so many interesting right. possibilities. The con man's been selling instruments yeah. to... Like... Who can't hear them. Brilliant. I love it. It's, it's so fascinating. But that's the sort of thing that comes out of actually working with members of the community mm-hmm. rather than running the lyrics of your song through an ASL translator on the internet. <laughs> Which is what it felt like we were seeing in this production. Which, again, was disappointing also because there was so much really interesting, um, what I would call pedestrian choreography. Simple movements, Mm -hmm. um, creating scenic performances, you know, creating spectacle on stage with human bodies. I thought, yeah, I thought the movement was really nice because it was easy enough for non-dancers to mm-hmm. do but it looked nice enough that it wasn't just like a step touch step touch. yeah exactly no i think i think so much of the choreography was really good like that that made the asl stuff stand out more as a weird confusing choice um, oh. go ahead out of so there's 27 actors in this production yeah Three or four of them were fat. Mm-hmm. Three or four of them were black. Mm-hmm. So that was cool. Some representation. Of course, we can always be working towards mm-hmm. some. And more, representation isn't everything. No. And no, all the leads not. were skinny, which. Yes. <laughs> yes. One of the leads, Margot, was a black actor. Yes, that was um, cool. And that was non traditional casting because clearly none of the characters were yes, black. Yes, that was very clear. Um, but that well, that's a whole no other re- conversation. Yeah. It doesn't bother me at all. Like cast yeah. 
whoever is best for the role is cool with mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, there, I mean, we can talk about it elsewhere, but there's a distinction between... This felt like, to me, the the thing I don't like, which is colorblind casting rather than race-conscious race casting. Fair enough. I think in this show, it didn't have a huge impact one way or the other. Um, but Margot never felt to me like a black woman in the Appalachian South in the 1940s owning a bookshop. No, because the character wasn't yeah. black. It, I, if you think about it too long, it brings up a lot of questions because they would have been segregated. Interracial mm-hmm. marriage is <laughs> illegal. Um, and those questions shouldn't prevent black actors from being cast in these roles. Exactly, yeah. Um, it brings up more questions than, say, like, Hedda Gabler. As yeah, a black actor. Yeah. Well, um, well I, the question I have then almost becomes one of, okay, well then why do we need to do this such a white show? Yeah, my next question is, okay, are they going to do like an August Wilson in their next season <laughs> or something? Like, if you really want to commit to... Commit! Um, <laughs> diversity in, in yeah. your productions. Well, especially when you like call it out in your curtain speech, it feels very self-congratulatory. Oh, what did he say in the... Oh, he was just like, I want you to see, we've got these 28 actors on stage, and you'll see... You know, all different types, and we were such an inclusive environment. Okay. And I was just like, ew. Like, let the work speak for itself. <laughs> um, but yes, I was happy to see actors who were black and fat, not necessarily at the same time. I was fine with that. We were commenting that the fat actors could barely fit in the seats that we were sitting in. Yes. The... Seats were uncomfortable for the, the thin people. Yeah. So <laughs> So the fat people amongst us had it even worse. <laughs> it was incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. Seats. It was like airplane. Which again raises the question of okay, we're doing inclusivity, but we're not actually we're doing it on stage. We're doing visibility rather than inclusivity. Because mm-hmm. who are you excluding from, from the going seat. to the audience? Yeah. And this is another conversation in theater, and I... And this, like, is, and this is not, like, a call-out post of this theater or no, this production. This is no, a big conversation. This is a big problem. But why, when we... It's so hard to get butts in seats for live theater. Mm-hmm. Why you would exclude? Mm-hmm. I, I get it, because you need the smaller seats for more people in the audience to fit more seats, so mm-hmm. you sell... 100 tickets, if you have larger seats, then maybe you sell 75 mm-hmm. is, is a full house. and um, But I, this is an ongoing yes. question I've had for and, years. And not meant to be a call-out of this theater or no. this production. No. Not that they'll ever hear this. Um, but we're not trying to be mean. <laughs> no. No. And we enjoyed it. We yeah. enjoyed the show. Yeah. We don't have any big bugaboos about uh, the production. I do have one big bugaboo about the production. Oh. I don't know if bugaboo is the right word. All the glasses were empty and I hated it. <laughs> they did have a decanter that had brown liquid in it. Yes, but nobody used it. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we were sitting by this edge of the stage where you were the closest to the people who were drinking in the bar. But like all of the glasses weren't just empty. They felt empty in the actor's hands. It is much harder to act like a glass is full when it's empty. 
Um, Eleanor, would you put some colored water in the glasses, please? It doesn't bother me because it's so such a norm in TV and film is that they use empty glasses yeah, and the actors don't act like they have anything in them. It's a pet peeve of mine. I'm fine with it, but... Especially if you have a song about drinking, which was another round was the song, like, all about drinking. Yeah, that does make the question, then, why did they have stuff in the decanter? <laughs> They had another practical food of a biscuit uh-huh. that they took bites of. Mm-hmm. That's the only... Um, yeah. Which is, I mean, I don't I don't need a lot of practical props and stuff, but it felt, the empty glasses felt weird. Of course, there's, there's a story of, my dad used to tell of a show where uh, a character was drinking ouzo in the show, and they just used real ouzo for some reason. What is ouzo? Oh, it's a, a licorice... Liqueur. Ah. Oh, no. They used real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was a bad idea. Um, well, they had knee-high. Knee-high. They did. They real had real bottles high. of knee-high. That was a re- So, one more reason. Like, why wasn't there something in the glass? <laughs> um, minor. Minor nitpicks. Um, similar minor nitpick. At the same time. They specifically stated that we're going out on Friday night. We are out on a Friday night. And the next day, Saturday, everyone's in the office, like, working like it's a normal day. And like, oh, she's, you know, she's out sick because she was partying too hard last night. And I'm like, it was a Friday. Do we work on Saturdays? That's true. Just a a A little dramaturgical. Little dramaturgical questions you have to answer in a production. Um, Very silly. Not necessary. Also a descriptor of the song Another Round. Very silly, not quite necessary. The whole bar scene didn't... It it may have been in a different show. Yeah, it was in a different show. And it it felt to me like, oh, we need to pad out our second act. Mm. Um, rather than doing anything interesting. But I think it also doesn't help that all of Billy's story felt superfluous, and that was part of Billy's story. The love story between him and Margot was non-existent. Um, she gets a real nice song at one point when Billy moves out to Asheville, but that's the closest thing to characterization she gets. And I never got a sense from the text that these were good long friends who'd known each other since they were kids, other than them telling me that. Uh, Yeah, those those were thoughts I had. Um, Because it wasn't Billy's story, but they were trying to make it Billy's story. And that hurt the show. Dramaturgically. There was not a dramaturg that worked on this production. This is the first. The first thing I did was look through the. I always do too. Is there a dramaturg? Is there a dramaturg? There was a director's note, and the director's note was very generic. Yes, yes, it was. I'll just leave that Mm -hmm. there. Uh, Yeah. I don't have a lot else. I was. It was nice to go see some live theater. It was a pleasant show. Yeah, no. None of these things that we're saying are like 
damnations or <laughs> I mean it's not like I kind of always compare things like okay it wasn't Book of Mormon <laughs> where we got some real bones to pick with Book of Mormon that was one of the most fascinating live theater experiences of my life um, one other super minor nitpick uh, the bookshop employees b- doing business in the bookshop felt so out of place. Again, compared to everything else that was going on. Um, it's like, I'm going to stand on this ladder and like hand you a book back and forth. Uh, which was distracting. That's all I got. Oh. Any other comments? I don't think so. Uh, it was, again, fun to see live theater. The songs were nice. The performances were really strong. Um, I don't this is the other uh, last other thought uh, I feel like they felt trapped behind the proscenium far too often oh they didn't come out on the apron yeah like a couple times they did but I felt like so much of the action was very far upstage That's unnecessarily um, and I couldn't figure out why they were doing that particularly when you have half of the area behind the proscenium taken up by the band. Mm -hmm. Like, that's an encouragement to come forward. And they very much felt trapped behind that. Uh, Which was not a, again, not a huge problem, just something I observed. Any other thoughts from you? No. Okay. (laughs) Would do again. Yes, would go see live theater more. Would do again. I like it. Cool. You want to tell them about our Patreon? Yeah, we have a Patreon. It's uh, patreon.com slash five degrees. You can support us. It is on a per episode basis. Um, and you can put a number, a cap on the monthly number of episodes you want to support for the rare month that we do 20. And you're like, I'm going to We've never done 20 in a five. month. But- Maybe one month we will. <laughs> well, Kevin is behind in releasing episodes, so maybe he's this gonna week. Be like, I I scheduled release- <laughs> all of our unreleased episodes. This will come out all after all of those, but I did in fact schedule all of our unreleased episodes. <laughs> I was very proud of myself. <laughs> Good job, Kevin. Uh, there's two perks. One is you get the super duper 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 unedited cut from when we turn the mic on to when we turn the mic off. The other perk is you get a list of movies, because we always do movies. We often do movies. We didn't uh, make this to be a movie-watching podcast. It no. just sort of became one. <laughs> uh, usually, Kevin gives me a list of five movies, and I choose one, and we watch it and then do a podcast. This time, there is no list of like other, other <laughs> theater plays, musicals we didn't go see. Maybe I'll come up with some week. other secret thing to put inside the notes. Uh, um. And, yeah, rate us and review us on your favorite podcatcher. We thank you for listening, and it will always be free, because podcasts should be free and yeah. accessible to all. You should put that on a t-shirt. That would yeah. be on our t-shirt if we ever had t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> podcasts should be free and accessible to all. Uh, cool. Yeah, that was everything. Cool. Say, say goodnight, Amy. Goodnight, Amy.